Coming up on this week's show, Shenmue 3 arrives in demo form, but does it look any good? A rare Nintendo 64 controller has been unearthed. And we talk to the father of Rampage and Spy Hunter, Brian Collins. This week's show is brought to you by Retro Gamer, the essential guide to classic games. And The Economist, a smart guide to the forces changing your world. Welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 193, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And welcome to our first show of October. Oh, I wasn't expecting that. It won't be long until we start getting out our spooky games to play. I already Halloween. have. I already have. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a bit of an annual tradition every year for me. It's either I sit down with Alone in the Dark and uh, Resident Evil. Sometimes I yeah. play that on Halloween. What's yours? What's your go-to? Um, usually a Resident Evil game, yeah. to be honest. But this year, because I'm doing an Instagram page at the moment, is I'm trying to post a horror-themed game every single day of the month. Should we let him plug his Instagram? Come on, so uh, it's Retro Hour Joe eighty nine. Um, so far, because it is only the second of October, I've only done two posts. But I'm hoping to do all thirty one, and I'm hoping to play all thirty one. And as well. mine's a Silent Hill with the radio on. Oh, okay. oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I must admit, a little bit of Call of Duty Zombies as well. But this yeah. show is not about that. This show is about the golden age of video games. Those days when you used to get in your BMX and go down the corner shop and get a tape for your Spectrum for one ninety nine, or maybe you used to go to Blockbuster and rent a game for your Mega Drive, or if you're like Ravi, hang around the school playground, when he was at school, just point that out, <laughs> and get copied this for his Amiga. That's the kind of stuff that we talk about on this podcast every week. The golden age of video games, and every week on the Retro Hour, we bring you a special guest. Now, these could be people who we just enjoy sharing stories with and hearing from, or it could be someone who was directly involved in making these incredible games that we loved back in the day. And this week's guest, my word, he's done a fair bit. Yeah, so we've got uh, Brian F. Collin, and Brian is absolutely amazing. He started working at Bali Midway, which was, you know, one of the kind of pinball creators, and they made all the pinball games, and then the video game crash happened, and Williams came and took over, and he developed some fantastic titles like Spy Hunter, Rampage, which has just been into... A movie with uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, as you've seen, and uh, it's a really interesting interview. We kind of talk about all the different technologies and, uh, you know, going from arcade to the big screen. Yeah, because I mean, he started, like, you know, 1983? 82. 82. 82. He worked on the Tron game, didn't he? Yes. That was, um, you know, you've got to think then that it's so early. Yeah. In, you know, but back then, that, that technology, it was just getting started. Mm. And then the fact that, you know, he went on to work on stuff like the Star Trek Voyager um, yeah. game in the arcades. It was yeah. like a light gun kind of game. I mean, he's done a hell of a lot. And he formed his own development group as well. So, uh, you know, doing over 42 titles with that. Yeah, so this is going to be really interesting. Brian Collin is going to be our guest on the Retro Hour podcast. He'll be on in around 20 minutes from now. And we've got some brilliant stories that we need to talk about this week as well. Before we do it, though, let's roll out the red carpet and say a big thank you to this week's donators. Now, every week on the show, we say a big thanks to those who allow us to keep coming in every week and giving you the retro gaming news, bringing you these incredible guests for almost, come on, guys, almost 200 episodes. It's mad. We're We're getting there, aren't we? It's getting pretty close. (laughs) Ravi's been listening to some of the classic episodes recently as well and just, like, getting nostalgic, and I can't believe Uh we're here all these these years on. (laughs) You know, we were just discussing, we thought Joe had joined us a lot later. I actually listened to episode four, and he was on there. That's why we're sick of it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you all knew me before. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the only reason that we kept it going this long, guys, is thanks to your support. And uh, for making a donation of any amount through our website, 
on the supporters tab, you will find your place in the Hall of Fame. And we'll give you mention on a future show, just like this week. Jeremiah Lin. Norbert Sazabu. Chris Appleton. And Jason Herrick. Who all made donations into the running of the show. Really, really appreciate that, guys. And if you could find it in your heart to do the same, you'll find the link on the front page of our website at theretrohour.com or direct from your phone, paypal at theretrohour.com. And also, while we're giving big ups to companies and people who support this show, let's give a huge thank you to the legendary Retro Gamer magazine. I think it's fair to say all of us around the table have read Retro Gamer pretty much since it started. Yeah, I've been reading Retro Gamer since about 2007. And for me, when you told me last week that they were sponsoring the show, that was just unreal for me. I was just like, what, (laughs) Retro Gamer magazine? That's crazy. So a huge thank you to Retro Gamer. Now, they are, of course, the only magazine dedicated to all aspects of retro gaming. And every single month, they bring you exclusive access to developers, giving you behind-the-scenes access to those games that you grew up playing. And you can read what the biggest names in the industry have got to say about the games that they created and the incredible legacy that they've left and get to revisit your favourite games of all time and uncover fascinating new facts. Now, of course, today in the UK, the Mega Drive Mini comes out and that is actually the cover story on this month's edition of Retro Gamer magazine. There's honestly a full section in here dedicated to the Mega Drive Mini. So if you're thinking of buying one, everything you need to know is in this month's edition of Retro Gamer magazine. And one thing that I do love that they've done for years now is they do a little section. It's either back to the 80s back to the 90s or back to the noughties, where they take you back to a particular year and kind of talk about what was happening in gaming that year. And this month, they go back to October 2002. Looking at the games that were in the charts as well, Medal of Honor was top of the PS2 chart, Grand Theft Auto 3, that I think is a game that doesn't get enough love. Everyone goes on about Vice City, but 3, I think, was an incredible game. Halo Combat Evolved, and the charts even talk about the music charts. One of Ravi's favourite songs was um, in the top three. Gareth Gates and Will Young, long winding word. <laughs> I was like, where's he going with this? <laughs> oh, and Escal Genius as well. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> and roller, top co- 10. roller Coaster Tycoon, a massive feature. Yeah, you know, they, they, we have a lot of people that we interview on this podcast, but my God, they have a lot of people that we've not interviewed in Retro Gamer. And Chris Sawyer is one. Roller yeah. Coaster Tycoon was such a big kind of franchise. When that came around, it really took theme park's title away, yeah, didn't totally. it? Well, I was reading through The Making of Blackthorn, which for me was an incredible game that I used to play uh, on a SNES ROM. Oops. But we do have The Making of it here, which is an early Blizzard game, and it's really in-depth. We've got about four pages here, just learning everything that you need to know about that game, which is pretty amazing. Well, if you love our podcast, you will love Retro Gamer. Now, we want everyone to get a copy of it, and honestly, this blew our mind last week, and we heard how incredible this offer was. Now, this is exclusive... To retro our listeners, we're giving you a chance to save 93% off the price. Three issues of Retro Gamer for just a pound. That's crazy. <laughs> when I told Joe that, he's like, that must be a misprint. Yeah, I was like, for a pound. I One was like, pound. no. <laughs> One, what can you buy for a pound? Uh, Greg's sausage roll. That's what I said last week, and I'm going to stand by it this week. I don't think you even buy anything in the pound shop for a pound these days. No, they're, they're always like pound stretcher, aren't they? <laughs> but we want to give you this. Three issues of Retro Gamer for just a quid. Now, that would normally cost you £15. So all you've got to do to claim this exclusive offer, do it right now, open a new tab in your browser, tap in myfavouritemagazines.co.uk forward slash retro hour and claim this offer that only you lucky people can get myfavouritemagazines.co.uk forward slash retro hour with Retro Gamer, the essential guide to classic games. Now, before we get into our chat with Brian Collin and bring you this week's news stories, of which we need to talk about the Shenmue 3 demo that just landed a couple of days ago, 
if you listen to this podcast and you think, you know, you guys sound like the kind of guys I'd like to hang out with. We love that. Whenever we go to events, which we do a lot these days, one of our favourite things about going there is actually meeting people that listen to the show, like-minded people, hanging out, having a cup of tea, having a beer, chilling. Whatever we do at events, I mean, really meeting people is the main thing that we love doing. So we like to give you guys a chance to come along and check out the Retro Hour Live. Now, we're going to be a really interesting event that's coming up at the end of next month. The date for your diary, Saturday the 24th of November. And this is called the Podcast Social Club. Yeah, it's in uh, Yorkshire, isn't it? Your, yeah, my old stomping ground. Your, your old stomping ground. And it looks really nice. You know, I think that they're going to have a meal as well afterwards and stuff. But um, we're basically doing a live kind of retro hour show from 4.30 to 5.30. So we'll be talking about consoles and stuff and we'll be uh, checking out anybody's console that they bring along. And yep. we, can, we can chat about consoles, computers, all that old stuff. It'd be like a video games version of Antiques Roadshow. Yeah. yeah. So if you want Joe to like rub your game key <laughs> and value it for you. I just want somebody to bring me an Amiga or something and I'll just be like looking at like some like caveman just like, like ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Well the idea is, I mean, this is actually going on from the Friday night into, on the Saturday too. It's a two-day event happening in Thursk at Rural Arts, which is a centre right in the middle of Thursk. If you haven't been to Thursk before, it's in North Yorkshire. You, know, you go past Leeds and Weatherby a bit further up before you get to County Durham. And the idea of this is that you become part of the live audience during the recording of many of your favourite podcasts. Now, there's going to be a load happening throughout the weekend as well. Um, on Friday and Saturday, there's going to be nine different podcasts there in three different rooms. So there could be three different podcasts happening at any one time. So you pick one. Prices vary depending on the show. I mean, obviously, being us, we're at the bottom end of the ticket prices. Uh, five quid if you want to come and check out the Retro Hour Live plus your booking fee. Really reasonable. Come along. We'll be there all day so you can come hang out with us. So if you want to check this out, Podcast Social Club, we'd love to see you guys there. Tickets are strictly limited, so it's first come, first served. If you want to get yours, all you've got to do is head to podcastsocialclub.com, click on the Retro Hour link there, book your tickets, and of course I'll put that information in our show notes at theretrohour.com. So the game that people have been waiting for now for... Uh, must be almost 20 years that people have been excited to finally get a sequel to Shenmue 2. And it looks like it's almost here. The first demo landed last week. And this has got good reviews. Now, I have just a little disclaimer here. None of us around the table are super Shenmue fanboys. Well, it's, it's weird because Shenmue came out on a console that wasn't that successful. Yeah, and prob- on the Dreamcast. Yeah, and probably sold not that many copies. So, you know, I think... Maybe in America they might have been yeah, more Shenmue yeah. focused. I think the re-release on, Europe, on the re-release maybe. on the original Xbox did a lot for Shenmue. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just it's got a real, real passionate cult following. Shenmue one and two, and obviously, uh, I'm pretty sure it smashed its Kickstarter yeah. as well. So we've got our first kind of hands-on look with the gameplay of uh, Shenmue 3. You've been watching a video. I mean, as somebody who obviously wasn't a mega fan of the original game, though, Jeremy, what do do you think of the video that you've watched? I mean, it looks pretty interesting. We've got our main dude here doing the tornado kick. (laughs) (laughs) But we have got some uh, gameplay here, um, and it does look really cool. The graphics do look really, really nice. And the thing is, you've got modern graphics here, but they've got that kind of retro, kind of vibrant kind of look and feel to them. And it's not often that you get a, a nice-looking game like this these days. They're always kind of like dark and yeah, nitty yeah. and gritty kind of thing. Whereas this doesn't look like this. this is reminiscent of, you know, the original two games. Uh, you know, really here it's saying as well, it's, it's 1999 in a bottle, yeah. which I think is quite cool. <laughs> so, you know, if you've got the nostalgia for the 90s, I think this is going to be right well, up people's street. It, it was that kind of free-roaming 
sandbox yeah, stuff, yeah. wasn't it? It was one yeah. of the big titles that did that. But I remember seeing lots of videos on it because Adam Kirillik, uh, we've previously had him on the podcast, yeah. great big, guest. Big YouTuber, yeah. He's involved with this and he was talking about, he did an actual like Shenmue tour oh, in really? Japan. Yeah. And he went there and he said, they've, they've fully recreated this town to the point that there was like a local crazy guy sitting in the cafe. They had him in the game. Wow. And it was like <laughs> that level of accuracy. So... I think with this one, they're going to continue that and, you know, have a really good representation of that area in Japan. So you make a good point there as well about these kind of locations that are in the game. I mean, for me, I play more Shenmue 2. The fact that I wouldn't actually follow most of the, the plot through. Yeah. I just go wandering off and get distracted. Similar to what I do in Grand Theft Auto, I guess, really. Yeah, yeah. And the fact the game let you do that, I mean, at the time, it was something quite you know revolutionary, yeah. really. But I think the biggest plus about this demo that actually got delivered to Kickstarter backers mm. last week, so a lot of them been playing it, there is footage on YouTube. Um, a lot of the, the most positive thing I've read about it is that it feels like a Shenmue game. Because that is where they can easily get it wrong. Yeah, and that can ruin the entire thing, especially all these years later and like, all the different yeah, console I was generations. Say, it's good that they've captured that yeah. twenty years on, you know, and they've not just made it feel like any old other kind of open world sandbox game. And when I look back at footage of Shenmue One, I swear I was playing it wrong. I must have had like the wrong <laughs> connectors or a dodgy pirate version or something. Because every time I see it now, people have used the VGA capture. Yeah, they've done it on their thing, and it just looks absolutely amazing. So maybe it's a title <laughs> that. Um, needs revisiting you know now the third one's out check out the whole trilogy the weird thing is it's not coming out on xbox though it's only coming out on windows and playstation 4 so you know console wise it's ps4 exclusive mm. at the moment but you know it's going to be out on november 19th so everyone can play it in a couple of months time so i think you know for me again i mean like like i mentioned before all us guys are not super shenmue fans but i will get it just out of interest because yeah. you know it's it's such a legendary game and i know how hard the fans have fought to get a sequel to it for almost two decades now. And you've got to give that respect. Oh, yeah. And, and the fact that Yu Suzuki's involved in it again, you mm. know. So if you want to check out the videos that we've seen so far about the demo and this article on Kotaku, I'll put that in our show notes at theretrohour.com. And this is quite amusing timing, actually, because um, we've actually had quite a heated debate on our Facebook page about the Nintendo 64. D- Dan's been <laughs> releasing controversial <laughs> videos. No, it's a, a really good video, actually, Dan released about... Uh, the kind of uh, N64, is it a supercomputer? Is it a Silicon's graphics machine? And that added debate. So we've got some more stuff to add to the N64 debate, haven't we, Dan? Yeah, well, I mean, Joe actually messaged me the other night. He goes, what have you just posted on our Facebook? It's blowing up. <laughs> People are like, no, you're wrong. It's caused an uproar. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I did a little video. It's essentially about the link between Silicon graphics, that, you know, the company that used to make all these high-end workstations and supercomputers that did like uh, Toy Story, Jurassic Park, and all those kind of films. But then, funnily enough, a couple of days later, a little article popped up and a guy on Twitter called out Shane Batia he found a very early Ultra 64 as you remember that was the original name for the Nintendo 64 a prototype controller now this thing looking at it I mean it obviously does bear quite a strong resemblance to the final release version but there are some very big differences I mean the first thing that you notice and Joe and I have already uh, had fisticuffs over this whether we agree or not is the analogue stick now you don't think it looks as good yeah, well, I don't know, because obviously it's got this big, chunky analog stick uh, in the middle. And the, the you know what, I'm going to go back on what I was saying. I said that I didn't like the look of it. <laughs> and Dan was like, no, I think that resembles more of a modern kind of analog stick. And the more I look at it, my first my first thought was, God, that looks horrible. It's all big and chunky. And now looking at it, I'm like, actually, it looks more like a modern PlayStation You flip-flopper. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> it, I, mean, it look, it I could have denied that. <laughs> but it does look, you know... it. It looks a bit chunky, but it might... The final release, obviously, was quite flimsy, caused a lot of 
you know, people on Mario Party hurting their palms and stuff like that. They might not have done it on this one. But what I find really interesting about this is I feel like the mould is ever so slightly different to the final release. Yeah. Uh, Ravi made a really good point that it sort of looks a little bit more like a GameCube controller. Obviously, other than the uh, the middle prong. <laughs> yeah, do you remember the promos for the Ultra 64? Yeah. They, they, I, I swear we saw this in the promos. You know, like when you got the original controller, it was all black and then it had the black I can't unit. Remember. I'm yeah. pretty sure they had the the coloured buttons, though, you know, the yellow C buttons. Ah, okay, yeah, maybe you it's know, a the bit red more start adapted. button, blue and green A, um, a and B, but... Obviously, this controller is completely black and grey. Um, and we've not got a picture of the back of it, so I'm interested whether the rumble pack and the uh, yeah and the uh, memory card slot are on there. It's interesting not. as well, because it kind of looks... If, if you cut the middle off it, it would be a Wii Classic controller. Yeah, <laughs> I can, that's what I was saying. I can see that there, the, uh, the Wii Classic controller. I think the colours of it just make it look more modern. Yeah. Yeah, black yeah. still was nice on devices. And it? this is from 1995, so... What a year or two yeah, yeah, before it came out, yeah. yeah. But I mean, out. looking at the top of it too, the the release N sixty four controller said Nintendo written on it. Mm. It's, like it's it's got space for a badge. Yeah, it so has, a bit like it? you know, like the N sixty four shape badge yeah. would fit on the top of there. And apparently, the it hasn't got the the connector that plugs into the front of the N sixty four. It's got a little like kind of telephone jack style wire on it. Oh, okay. So that must mean this is like you know, because even the when I was doing research for my video, I brought out um, the other day. I was looking at like development kits mm. on Silicon Graphics workstations mm. for N64 games, and even they had the controller slots on. So this must be a really early example. Yeah, to push and, straight into one of the computers. Yeah, yeah, using a telephone jack, which is really mm. interesting. And this guy on Twitter, Shane, um, he said he's going to try and kind of do a bit of reverse engineering here and actually get it hooked up to a release N64 and see if it works. Oh, wow. So it'll be an interesting development to follow. I mean, just really good timing as well that I've been looking into all this stuff and that's on the <laughs> surface. So what else do you want me to look up, Ravier? And anything else you want to see? A rare Amiga prototype or something? I'll do a video on it. I'll come back next week. <laughs> <laughs> now, actually, let's talk a bit about the Spectrum. Let's give the Specky some uh, love. The Lara naked scene. <laughs> <laughs> on this year's Fact or fiction? <laughs> <laughs> that was definitely fact, wasn't it? In I don't my, know. In my, in my memory. Yeah, that, that, that's the video that's going to get your hits. <laughs> well, let's talk a bit about the Spectrum because one thing about the original Spectrum is that it didn't have a wealth of connectors on it, you could say. The original Spectrum, I think, had like a connector for the tape ports. It had an RF modulator built in, and it had a power connector. That was about it. And obviously, back then, if you wanted to connect a joystick up to it, you even needed a Kempston joystick adapter for well, it. Well, you had to save money on adapters, didn't you, to keep the uh, specy cheap, basically. Yeah, exactly. Not, not as many ports. Yeah. Well, there's a new product out at the moment, if you want to give your uh, specy a bit of love, called a ZX VGA Joy. Now, what this is, is a little adapter that plugs into the back the expansion port on your Spectrum, and it works with loads of different models of the Speccy. Um, you know, there's an article here that I'll link up in our show notes um, talking about, you know, how it works on the uh, the 48K rubber key Speccy, right up to the plus two as well. So what it does, it plugs in the back, and it gives you the Kempston joystick interface, which is built in. Because obviously, if you had something in there, you couldn't have your joystick interface well, in too. But it gives you a VGA out. Well, the lovely thing I've seen about this is it's got an on-screen display, and the options for the VGA out are like 800 by 600 at 60 hertz. Yeah. You can choose between them. There's no physical switch switching. And you can even turn the Kempston in and off, on and off. You can have a interlaced 
over the top as well. Really nice. And you can even remove borders. So you can kind of zoom in a little bit, you know, because a lot of Spectrum games have those big yeah. borders on them too. And, you know, VGA actually, I was quite curious as to why they picked VGA, not like SCART or, you know, um, HDMI, HDMI or something, yeah. yeah. But actually, I've got to say, recently, I've, I've been quite liking VGA for my systems. Probably spurned on again from the fact that I did my Dreamcast out when we are talking about the 20th anniversary the other week. And that looks gorgeous on it's, VGA. It's not hard to get a VGA to HDMI converter as yeah. well, is it? So, you know, you could always do that. And I guess it leads it into that monitor world as well. So, And I guess you know, with VGA, you can plug it into like a an old school CRT as yeah, well, if you exactly. want to run it on that. So yeah. that is pretty cool. And it's good to see some new products coming out for the Spectrum as well. Now, the Atari VCS, <laughs> the new one, <laughs> is not a system without its controversies. Apparently, no. <laughs> it is coming out at the start of next year. It's on course. But what does lead a bit of extra credence to it is the fact that they've now teamed up with retro gaming platform and stream. Okay, so before we talk about this, I saw an article on the register, and this was what they were saying last month, so uh, it it was kind of a summary of what's happening with the VCS, and uh, they were saying Atari has missed every single deadline they've set for the VCS. Uh, They haven't provided an update in months, they have now. Yeah. Um, There's no evidence that there's even a working prototype. I think that's a very important point. You know, they keep making announcements, but... uh, We'd love to see a prototype, guys. And uh, the the only one man with actual experience building a games console is now the co-founder of another startup. So, <laughs> Which, I mean, it doesn't look that positive. So I mean, yeah, they say this. We're going to have this in our hands, March twenty twenty. Yeah, and we've not even seen an actual prototype of it yet. So we're four, what five months away from that. It's, it's you interesting, would have thought, you know. Like the Sega Mini, for example. I, I don't know. This is probably a bigger project than that. And that's been, like, in production for months. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? They've been making that. That's been ready to go, you know, ready to ship. Well, and this, this, we've not even got a prototype. Well, for. it's interesting because they say that they're hooking up with Antstream and they're saying, oh, that's going to bring 10,000, thousands of software, but you can do that anyway on Steam or, or whatever system or you're too. using. Yeah, and mm. Antstream's a much bigger thing that's now been funded by Tencent as well. They're investing in it, so it's huge international kind of companies behind it. But it seems really weird that they've, they've just kind of put this announcement out like, we're getting thousands of games and you've got something like the um, Amico... Uh, in television and they've got eight exclusive titles they've been able to you know actually mm. get them rather than this just seems like they're slapping a service I don't know like, $250 to play Pong seems a bit steep <laughs> well you know. <laughs> I mean they, they have did a little update actually this week mm. um, there is an Atari VCS official um, subreddit and a little statement they posted on there the other day um, said they're happy to clarify we're still on track for backers to receive their orders at the end of the year. So apparently those who back the project are going to get them before Christmas. They're still promising. Okay. Um, we're expecting a March 2020 launch. So again, not far away now. They said their last delay was due to a hardware upgrade, which we published a long blog post about, as well as an official press release. We are pushing out updates to our backers regularly, as well as publishing a new development blog on Medium when we've got something exciting to share. We're still chugging along as planned. Everything is going great. Lots of exciting stuff that we are excited to share. So the talk in the talk, the saying it's coming, I guess really the only thing we can do is wait. Yeah, I, I, I just wonder what the difference from like a Steam box or a small little kind of gaming box this is, you know, yeah. other, other than the case, the mould yeah. around it. I don't see any difference if it's got Unstream on it. You know, you can do that on a, not a Raspberry Pi, but something that's slightly a bit more powerful, you know. Yeah. Any, any computer, really, yeah. yeah. I mean, they say people are going to have their hands on it this year. It's October 4th today. Yeah. 
really, you know, in the next two months, we should be able to talk about this. You know, you know, people have got their hands on it. So people will be talking about this online. You know, there's a lot of backers out there. So hopefully we'll be able to get a little bit more information in the next two months, but I just can't see it happening. But I, I, if you haven't seen a prototype yet... I know. <laughs> you know? It's going to be yeah, fun. Yeah. I mean, maybe they've got this amazing technology that I just yeah. don't want to show anyone. You we know what? Yeah. I, w- I, I would love to see that. I, you know, I was yeah, being really pessimistic Atari right is now. But... such a big name, world famous. Mm. You know, and if they could do it right, they could really, really clean up, you know. And it does have its doubters. And I mean, you know, the retro gaming community has been burned by projects in the past. You can see why a lot of people are a bit cynical now. Yeah, And, yeah. you know, I do think they've made a lot of mistakes in terms of communication. And, you know, they've obviously made quite a lot of mistakes with this prototype hardware in the past. But also, also, I think there's, there's a degree, there's a, since there have been so many failures in the retro gaming community, there are people that now love projects to fail. Yeah. And they go out and try to... Rip them. Mm. Yeah, so... You know, you've got to have a balanced view on these things. And we've also, we don't want anyone to fail. You know, the, the more of these systems that are out there, the more people that are loving retro gaming, the more people that are making classic games. Exactly. Bringing back old brands, it's amazing. You know, we love to see yeah. this stuff succeed. So. so so take everything with a pinch of salt and wait till you actually see a product. Yeah, exactly. we, we wish you luck, though, Atari, with the VCS. <laughs> Hope it comes out before Christmas. Now, before we get into our chat this week with Brian Collin, talking about those games, Spy Hunter, General Chaos, Rampage, let's give a huge thank you to a very good friend of the Retro Hour podcast and a massive supporter of our show and that is our great mates at The Economist. Now The Economist is the smart guide to the forces impacting your world and it's been going over 170 years as a trusted source of intelligence and helping you get prepared for what is happening in the world around you. Now, they cover so much in The Economist. You can look through their website, you can look through a copy of The Economist. It covers economics, finance, world politics, business science, technology, and, of course, video games as well. And every week on the show, we have a little look through for something in The Economist that we found interesting. And actually following on from Antstream, there's a really interesting article they published recently all about the future of cloud gaming. Yeah, so they're saying uh, cloud computing could do for gaming what Netflix did for films. And uh, it's very interesting because they are talking about the services that are available at the moment. So PlayStation Now was one of them. Now PlayStation's actually signed up with Xbox to use the Azure technology for their cloud service. So the rivals (laughs) have done it. So what I'm thinking is, hopefully they're not going to do what Netflix did, which was completely fragment the market. So now we've got Disney, Netflix, Amazon Prime, all this. Imagine if we had about five different online gaming services and you had to sign up to every single one just to play each different (laughs) title. Yeah, (laughs) so I hope this uh, kind of... PlayStation and Microsoft coming together will be something positive. Well, there are games that are coming out that actually do have cross-platform compatibility, so yeah. you can play Xbox games against PlayStation. It's all the same stuff. architecture, really, isn't it? It is, so, and yeah. that is a good thing, I think. I mean, the one thing that worries me about cloud gaming is that you are reliant on a service, and then, you know, if and when the day that Xbox Live for the Xbox One goes all your games are gone. Yeah, when the managers <laughs> decide they're not going to continue paying for the servers, then, yeah. Yeah, which, you know, you think Microsoft, like, you know, they'll keep it going forever, but they killed off the original Xbox, didn't they? Yeah. Xbox Live after yeah. about, what, nine years? It wasn't very long. Hey, yeah, how many companies are going to jump on this? You have the Nintendo yeah. one coming out. You, have the, yeah. you know, <laughs> It could get pricey. Yeah. <laughs> but these are the kind of things you can keep up to date with and learn more about in The Economist. Now, we would love you to get a free copy of The Economist and check it out for yourself. Now, all you have to do 
to get your free copy of The Economist through your door, if you live in the UK, is grab your phone right now. And of course, you'll be really helping out our show by doing this as well. And we'd love you to read a copy of The Economist. It'll drop the letterbox onto your doormat. All you have to do is text the word retro and send it to 78070. So that is retro to 78070 to get your free print copy of The Economist, The Smart Guide to the Forces Changing Your World. And now, let's get into this week's interview with our special guest, such an interesting guy, Brian Collin. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is our pleasure to welcome on this week's very special guest. We're going to be talking about incredible games like Spy Hunter, Rampage, General Chaos, so many incredible games. Let's welcome on this week's guest, Brian Collin. Welcome to the Retro Hour. Hey, it's great to be here. So let's talk about your early days in video games. And I mean, what kind of first got you interested in the the wonderful world of games and computers? Two different things. Games I was always interested in. Computers I never had any interest in uh, at all. Um, I was a dungeon master, you know, for hire when, you know, as a college summer job, that type of thing. Always was into nerd stuff of all types video games was not in in my day as a child growing up in the u.s uh, we had the magnavox odyssey which basically had pong on it and if you wanted to see it in color you put a uh, green acetate gel over your television set that was about it for me for video games until i literally and started working into the in- industry so had you not experienced like a pinball or, or maybe Pac-Man earlier? Sure, I'd, I'd seen Pac-Man. It was interesting. I wasn't terribly impressed. I'm, a, uh, I'm an artist filmmaker. I won a lot of, in college, won a lot of awards for animation. I did an animation, uh, animated film called In Search of a Plot, which won a lot of international awards. That was great. And I was a filmmaker and I was, you know, I loved pinball. Pinball was a skill game that I was no good at, like most skill games electronic game pac-man i wasn't terribly impressed with primarily because the graphics were big ugly pixels and nothing it didn't really float my boat uh, there was nothing about the gate the electronic coin-op industry that had me ever imagine i'd be working for it well how did you eventually get to work <laughs> for it then <laughs> uh as i said i had this uh i had this award-winning film and uh, went all around New York, National Lampoon, all the big ad agencies, and everybody loved it. They said it was brilliant. It was hysterical. And I would have no trouble finding a job somewhere else. Uh, So I came back to Chicago and uh, was just basically had a little ad agency where, you know, um, I basically got paid in beer and popcorn and uh, for the local businesses. And I answered an ad at Bally Midway, you know, the pinball people. Mm. And I thought, what do they want an animator for? Because the the ad clearly said animator. And I, brilliant child that I was, I said, oh, they need someone to paint on the back of the glass. And a cell painter from animation, you know, knows how to do that. I went in and they looked at my film and they said, no, we want you to do, we need an animator because we started our own production company. We just did Tron and we need a real animator who understands animation techniques. We want you to do art for video games. And I was crushed. I was crestfallen. I, 
Um, I, you know, smiled politely and thanked them and toured their studio. And I said, hey, you know, if I don't seem too enthused, it's only because, you know, I'm trying to contain my emotions. But you got to understand I'm a successful, you know, I've got my own successful ad agency and I'm, I make like $200, $300 a month. And I remember uh, George Gomez, uh, mechanical engineer and kind of the heart of the team at that time, kind of said, you know, nodded and smiled and goes, yeah, I think we do a little better than that. And they made me, they made me uh, the offer. And a few weeks later, and I couldn't turn it down. It was an actual salaried position uh, that was, you know, <laughs> way, way, way beyond what I was scratching my life out at. And I remember turning to a friend and who was standing near the phone at the time. And, and I kind of made a joke out of it. I said, okay, childhood's over. I've got a real job. And I choked up, honestly, because I thought, you know, that was it. Childhood's over. And boy, was I wrong on every count. Childhood was not over. And uh, it has never been anything like a real job. It has been wonderful. And it was the right time to stumble into what turned out to be so far, 37 years of fun. Well, if we're talking about Discs of Tron, that you know that initial game that you're working on there, um, I mean, I remember when Tron the movie came out, and that in itself was like groundbreaking in terms of getting computer-generated animations. I know there's a lot of traditional animation in there as well, but that r- movie really did seem like a benchmark. I mean, trying to get in with that world and kind of imitate that style almost, I mean, was, was that kind of a big new thing to get your head around? It was, well, the fact that I didn't know, and I, I knew Tron. I loved the movie Tron. I'd seen the video game Tron that they did, and I was very unimpressed with the animation. Um, and that's why I really didn't think I would be a good fit for the job. I was a pen and ink kind of uh, guy, and, and being told I could work with 16 colors and only two or three frames at most to do an animated thing, I knew we weren't going to be doing this, and I say I knew, put that in quotes, um, that we weren't going to be breaking any you know boundaries here. But once I started working on the game, the programmer, I was lucky enough, the programmer on that game was Bob Dinnerman, and he had a vision. And his game was supposed to be part of the original Tron game, but he would not do it until he could get what he needed to make his vision real. And the limitations of the system meant it really pushed me. How do you get someone falling when you've only got two frames? How do you get someone running realistically? The best thing about it was from a traditional, for me, a traditional animation standpoint, um, it's weeks, if not months, to get your first thing drawn and then at the animation stand filmed and then uh, you know off to the lab and then you get it back and then you got to fix the mistakes. This new job that I fell into, I'm creating art in the morning and I'm playing it in the game in the afternoon. I was hooked. And and that game, I was hired specifically to animate that game. And the beauty of that job at the time, it was a very small group. So not only was I working on that, that's the uh, first game that was released that I worked on, but I was working on every other game in the office. Programmers worked on one thing at a time and in those days, animators got to work on everything. I'm doing missiles for Spy Hunter while I'm doing them all, you know, the main art for Discs of Tron while I'm working on a crazy little, I'm re-skinning within days, within weeks, I shouldn't say days, but within weeks of me joining the team, they let me re-skin an entire game that eventually made it 
popular enough in the arcade to go into production. So it was a very loose, very peer-to-peer, wonderful time. And I know I've digressed from your your question. I got to apologize for that. I <laughs> I tend to do that a lot. That's okay. It's interesting. So with uh, with that in mind, there, Brian, you mentioned a few times there that you weren't impressed by some of the limitations of some of the uh, the games you were working on. What was the first game that truly impressed you, and you thought, "Wow, this is this is pretty amazing"? The animation on here and stuff. <laughs> the one I did, just a try. I had a lot of preconceived notions. Again, like seeing Pac Man from the outside, seeing Tron from the outside. Uh, you know, as a just a player, you know, walking through a bar or an arcade, I saw the limitations of the animation and I was very bothered by, you know, it looked like, uh, I don't know if you remember the first Trom, he's goose stepping and giving Hitler salutes. And that was the range of the animation. And that is specifically why they hired me. I didn't know this at the time, but they had artists that could push pixels and they had very limited tools. They didn't have anyone that understood just the basics of of real film animation and that's why they hired me so being able to push against this limited system from the first and making it do more than i thought possible is what turned me around a hundred percent so with every game we did back in those days we were breaking rules we were pushing against the box we were thinking outside the box because everything we were doing was hadn't been done before I I was able to contribute at that level on a variety of games because it was a very, it wasn't corporate like today's stuff is. It was very peer-to-peer. We were lucky enough that our development office was not in the factory building. We were in a little rented space they had. My office was a hallway with a bunch of stuff pushed into it. And we were out, I don't know if it was by design or by happenstance, but management left us alone. You know, if I wanted to try to do a game, I would say to two or three people, hey, don't we, why don't we do this? Or I'd sit down and create a character and say, why don't we do a game based on this? And we'd all look at each other and go, sure, why not? So-and-so is going to be ready for something new tomorrow. And it was a wonderful time. Now, it didn't stay that way for, for too many years, but I was impressed by what we were doing, which as you can imagine, made the job an incredible amount of fun. So that kind of process of um, creating an original sketch or design for an arcade game and then squeezing it down into these tiny animations, did you kind of streamline that and get, get a good system going? Uh, yeah. One of the first things I did prior to my being there, uh, they were doing everything on graph paper. And they would draw it all out on graph paper first. And I'm an impatient guy by nature. The process, they had very bad tools. Uh, I mean, your fingers were almost raw by the end of the day because you had to change, and this may be too far into detail, but I mean, you had to, they used little tiny thumb buttons that were less than an eighth inch across to punch a single digit in and you, and thumb wheels that were very resistant and would tear your thumbs up to dial up the zero through 16 RGB values of a single color. Then you would use other small buttons to move the pixel to where you wanted it on the screen. And then you would finally, after all that, punch a button, another little tiny painful button to place the pixel. And not too long after I got there, they hired some people that actually created development tools. We had trackballs the size of small bowling balls. So you had a great amount of detail. That sped the process up, made it a whole lot easier to be creative without a lot of the back process that, because graph paper and dry, you know, colored dry markers don't look the same 
on the system. So for me, I started drawing directly on the system because you, you put this color next to this color, the bleed from just the raster monitors gave you a different effect in certain situations. So I found it much easier and much faster to create directly on the game monitors themselves rather than kind of pl plot the stuff out in advance. Plus everything that what I was doing was about movement. So I wanted to see frame two, not too long after frame one. Um, it was pushing pixels was, could be very tedious, but the bent I was allowed to take on a lot of my early games was Dissatron was about the most realistic, Spy Hunter 2. But I could they would let me say, okay, I want to make this a little more cartoony. I want to take this game that isn't earning well in the arcades and let's get rid of all that very dry spaceship look. Let's make it whimsical green aliens. And they let me, uh, which wouldn't happen today because we were all learning what we were doing. The process was very open-ended uh it's not it's totally fair to say we were making it up as we were going along which well, was great obviously one thing with that i mean kind of been new to all of this and this you know entire industry being new i mean was hitting those deadlines was that something that, that you kind of the team had to really be disciplined with not everybody did one of the nice things about being an animator working on a lot of different games is you would find out which programmers and you know every to get an idea into this game i had to I had to beg to in this game I might have to flatter in this game I could just say it so you're working with different people and the the deadline was hey we've got so long until test and then after test we go into production and the nature of the games I worked on was you have this basic concept and you build on that once you get that working everybody in the office would come by and say hey well why don't you do that or hey you know we could do this now it meant more work for the artist more work for the programmer more work for the sound guy and a lot of those games were just three people but because we were passionate about wanting to make the game more fun you didn't mind working later and later and later and then through test in my mind and in a lot the minds of a lot of us developing in those days, we knew people down on the factory floor. We knew if we didn't get our game done by this deadline, someone was going to be laid off. They wouldn't be working that week because we had nothing to run in production. So that deadline was a discipline that I think a lot of later game designers never had to deal with because I was told at a company I, I went to later by a, by a, the lead programmers, like, agree to any deadline, doesn't matter, at the last minute, just tell them there's a bug in it, you can take as much time as you want. We didn't have that in those early days. We took deadlines seriously, and I think in the, in the grand scheme of things, looking back, it made us better designers. It made us take a little more time to weigh, is this really a good idea? Is this really worth our time? Because if we don't get this done, those guys we eat lunch with every day, half of them aren't going to be here on Monday. So you mentioned Spy Hunter earlier on and you worked on the missiles with it. <laughs> Did you ever find out if the game ever ended or if it just kept on going? Uh, yeah, a lot of people, a lot of people um, these days have trouble understanding that in the early days, all, almost all the games kept going. Satan's Hollow, Rampage, Spy Hunter. We kept going and then if we got to an end, it wrapped. Uh, that is, it started over at level one. It wasn't until the hardware and the, the you know, we had EPROMs, ROMs inside the game that limited how much art we had. It wasn't until just even a few years later that games started having endings with big bosses and, and movies or at least 
storytelling. We had the space to do that kind of things. Games like Spy Hunter, we pushed everything to the limit. The the artwork that we created, we used again and again throughout the game. And if we had to, we changed the color palette to make it look like water. But it was the same blocks that we were using elsewhere in the game. Most of those games in those early days did not have endings. They just went on forever because we didn't have the, the extra space to do anything big and fun. Now, once we started seeing that in competitors' games, that gave us the juice to say to you know, the hardware guys and the management, no, no, we need more. You got to buy, spend the extra X amount of cents to get a bigger ROM in here so we can add art so we can compete on that level. That's the thing. I mean, some of the games back then, I remember, just crashed when you got to a certain stage because they didn't expect anyone to be playing them that long. So at least it didn't do that. Uh, yeah, testing, testing was great in those days too because we would, we'd put stuff in there that we would think the players wouldn't discover for weeks or months. And testing in the arcade world, especially in those days, was you put it out in a place you see how much money it makes, and you stand at the back of the arcade every chance you could get. Uh, after work, you know, we'd leave at five, we'd go to an arcade, and we'd stand in the back, and we'd look and see what makes the player smile, what makes him angry, most importantly, what makes him put that next quarter in. It, and that was always the most fun for me, because then I could tell, yes, the joke landed, or no, nope, no, nope, I knew, I knew they'd get PO'd at that easy AI. We got to make it cleverer because they're blaming the game. And if they blame the game, they're not going to play it again. If they blame themselves, they'll put in another quarter. So, and that's where you learn these things. Nobody knew this. Uh, nobody, this was not written down for us. We, bit by bit, we figured it out. Well, uh, Spy Hunter as well is kind of very Bondish, wasn't it? But um, I read recently that the rights were sold um, for a film in 2003. And I know recently, and we're going to talk about Rampage movie. Um, do you think this film will come to light? You know, I, I'm probably the wrong person to ask about that. I, um, I was delighted when I heard Spy, Spy Hunter might become a game, just like I was uh, when I heard Rampage might become a game. But I also took that with a lot of grains of salt because it's like, okay, well, if it's going to be a video game movie, it's going to stink. And that's okay because it'll be fun to see what they do with it. And I heard that way back when, and uh, I've had several people say, oh, it went this far. Do you know about this? Do you know about that? But I really don't know. So the short answer is, I have no clue. Well, J Joe would watch it. Joe's a fan of the Super Mario Brothers movie. I so, actually uh... do love the Super Mario Brothers <laughs> movie, and I would definitely watch it. But you uh, you mentioned there, obviously, that they do stink. Um, and that kind of brought me to my next question is, some of the home ports obviously, of a classic arcade game sometimes aren't quite up to scratch. Were you ever disappointed when you'd see some of the home ports of the games you worked on? I was never disappointed in a home game, particularly because I never expected them to be much. Hmm. Uh, the main uh, Back in those early days, that we used to get copies of the home stuff that had come into the marketing department, and they'd give us copies. I usually checked out the uh, box art, because especially in my early days, I wasn't doing the cabinet art yet. I was just doing maybe game design and game art and screen art. Um, so I would check out the box art. I would see, okay, yeah, they did a nice version here. No, this one's not too good. I, I had the games in my basement, the arcade games. So all of them were a disappointment to anyone that was expecting a version of the arcade game especially in those early days. Um, but I was never too disappointed because I was never really expecting that much out of them. 
I initially hear that um, management kind of took a bit of convincing to get the idea of Rampage through, you know, uh, <laughs> monsters tearing up a city. Yeah, that's the understatement. That's a massive understatement. Uh, we uh, were in a meeting after one of these trade shows, and uh, I saw some things that other companies were doing with background animation and big characters, and I wanted to do big characters. I'd done one game with a triple-size sprite character that uh, I could really show facial features and comedy. I could really show comedy and... Uh, so I, I wanted to do something and I was trying to convince the hardware guys and there's like, no, you can't do anything. We've only got a screen and a half of background for on this hardware. It doesn't uh, scale. There's nothing you can do, Brian. Just get it out of your head. All you can do is, you know, move a rectangle. What are you going to do with a moving rectangle? And I looked at Sharon, one of the other animators, and I said, okay, a building falling into itself. That's a moving rectangle. What knocks down buildings? A giant character, larger than usual. I can sell comedy. Pulled in a couple more people. We all were excited. We said, we've got, in the, in the game original game design document, which usually they were on cocktail napkins, but I actually <laughs> typed one up for this one. I said, this is the story of Rampage or why this is next year's number one game. We all knew it. We all knew we had a hit. Went to our boss and he said, no. Wow. You know, I've, I've got other things going on. So I went to a vice president and uh, he said, hey, no, I like this. I like this. This could be funny. But no. And all of upper management had reasons why we couldn't do it. We couldn't be fighting the police. We couldn't be fighting the army. You couldn't be a bad guy. You can't eat people. I hadn't told them that they were going to turn naked at the end yet. Um, but my programmer I'd been working with on a couple games, uh, Jeff Nauman, he and I went ahead anyway and started proving out the concept. And just, it wouldn't have happened except right around that time, within weeks, all of upper management, the top president and top three, top three guys got let go by Bally Midway. And they brought in a guy from retail who in his initial talk to the troops said, I've got an open door policy. And you can guess who is waiting for him outside his door the next morning at 8.59 a.m. <laughs> and he signed off on it and it went on to break every record, earnings record of any video game of the time. That was, of course, Rampage. That's incredible. So with that in mind, uh, the Rampage promotion was pretty cool, sending out letters to all the towns that were involved in the game saying that you're slated for destruction. <laughs> Did that bring a lot of extra attention to the media? It did. It generated, to my knowledge, several uh, television video pieces uh, and at least 160 uh, newspaper articles, most of which I still have clippings from. <laughs> and the backstory on that, <laughs> believe it or not, was we had this game. It was making a ton of money. And, you know, we had limited graphics. So about all we could do to make the cities different was... Jeff and I decided, well, let's just make them cities around the U.S. And so I went to marketing and said, hey, beautiful marketing campaign. Why don't we write to all these cities and say your town is about to be destroyed? And now everybody all together, guess what marketing said? <laughs> no. <laughs> so I wrote the press release and uh, sent them out all over the country. And uh, it, it ended up 
doing quite a bit for the game, I like to think. Uh, I, all I know, it was fun It was fun to do it, and the articles ended up, I mean, just ran the gamut in terms of how people approached it. It was, it was a very successful campaign, especially back in the days before, you know, electronic media. Some changes happened in 1988, and Williams Electronics bought Bally Midway, and you and Jeff Newman were the kind of the only designers that were retained. Uh, what were the changes in the company at the time? Prior to then, Midway, Bally Midway had tried a couple of uh, things that didn't work out. They they talked with Bally Sente out in the coast. They wanted to move everybody out to California. I said no. And I love California to visit, but I have a nice acre, home on an acre here. And, and I said no, and Jeff said no. So right up until the last minute, they said, okay, then we're letting you go. At the last minute, said they said, we're going to let you work here. You'll come up to a little office near the uh, facility. And we worked out a deal. I said, no, I'm, I've am i built an office on the back of my property, and that's where I'm going to work. And Jeff did the same. Well, that didn't work out. They tried a couple other experiments, Bally Midway I'm talking about. And then finally, during that time, we were still doing games. We did I did Xenophobe with Howard Shear. I worked on several other projects. Jeff came up, we had always wanted to do multiplayer controlling multiple characters. And Jeff came up with the idea for arch rivals and I added the punching and the personal fouls so that it would be funny for non-basketball players. And we were about halfway through arch rivals when that the company had been sold. And, you know, part of me likes to think that they appreciated our contribution at the new Williams. And part of me says, no, it was a practical move. We were halfway through the game, so they wanted to let us finish it. All I know is that uh, we finished the game at the new uh, Bally Midway Williams, as we called it for a while, offices. Although we were still working at home, I was working my home, Jeff was working at his home two or three days a week. We finished our tribals for them. And uh, I was told later by a, uh, an executive that uh, sales from arch rivals paid for the buyout, which I don't know if that's true, but I love to tell retell that story anyway, because <laughs> it feels really good. You know, we got into this um, era, like, you know, when Xenophobe and stuff came out. I mean, we're kind of getting into the late 80s there, and technology was improving rapidly. And, you know, from memory, I think that ran on the Motorola 68K. That was a 16-bit game. I mean, did you kind of see technology growing, and did it give you more freedom when this technology kind of came in? I saw it more in the home stuff. Now, looking at the home games, the quality and the what they could do in a lot of cases was more than we could do with the hardware we were working on. After Williams bought us, they gave us, unlike earlier Bally Midway, here's the hardware, this is what you've got to work with. Williams had several, it had a very different approach. They had several hardware systems that we were given our choice to work with. And uh, it was almost overwhelming. Jeff and I knew all the tricks. We knew, I mean, we faked, there is no scrolling in our tribals. You think it's scrolling, it's not. There was no scrolling in xenophobe uh, we we found ways to fake stuff on our limited hardware in terms of our day-to-day job we did not embrace the new hardware just because we knew how fast we could get things done on what we knew so our our follow-up to um our tribals was then pigskin and pigskin was done on valley midway's old hardware it wasn't until after that that we we started to uh, explore 
what hard, what Williams hardware we use for our next game. Cause obviously they were doing things like narc. They were doing, you know, getting going on things like mortal Kombat, and we could see that it was going to do much more, but we also knew as a team, Jeff and I, especially as a team that could get the most out of this dated hardware, uh, going back to your question about deadlines, we were very deadline oriented. If they said they needed it in nine months, we'd give it to them in nine months. If they said we could have 11 months, we'd take 11 months. So it was kind of a hard adjustment for us on the arcade side to say, okay, we're ready to move to this new new hardware. And in point of fact, we got wooed away uh, and formed our own company after Pigskin before we ever even completed our first game on their new hardware. So it, that better hardware I saw coming up all around us, but we didn't embrace it. In fact, we went the other way and went to EA and started making games for the Sega Genesis. So that was actually my next question. So you developed General Chaos for the Mega Drive. What was it like working on the Sega Genesis and working on consoles rather than arcades? For me, it was wonderful. I think for both of us, it was wonderful. I mean, we we were used to limited systems. We were used to getting the most we could out of them. The fact that we did a uh, real-time strategy game uh, on, well, what I call the Sega Genesis, was, you know, pushing every limit we knew how to push on a limited system that was not too far away from where, which was as powerful in some respects, if not more powerful than the first hardware we did 10 years earlier. So and I started in 82, at 92, we formed Game Refuge uh, because basically EA wanted asked me to come out and work in California. And again, I said no. And finally, after about a year of negotiation, they said, well, what if we just give you the money to start your own company? And I looked at Jeff and I was like, yeah, we could do that. And General Chaos was the first concept we went out there with. We left Midway under very good terms um, and said, we're going out there cold. And fortunately, they loved the pitch of General Chaos. And the only one thing that came up during that initial meeting was one of the suits out there wanted us to change it to a, a uh, gangs on an urban street. And we refused because I, I wanted the kind of throwback to, for me, in a World War II-ish era because that would be for, farther removed. I didn't want anybody, any my kids playing a game that had them worrying about what's going on in the streets of the city. So, but they, fortunately they agreed with us. And then General Chaos was, I think it was their number one non-licensed title for that year. So I, I was really happy with the way that turned out. And then the system was very comfortable. They had tools, they had, um, they had processes in place already for development that typically we'd have to create on our own. So it was a very comfortable transition for us. And I guess we're talking about before that kind of arcade at home experience. I mean, when you got into that kind of, you know, like the Genesis hardware and the Super Nintendo, I mean, really it kind of got to the stage where the systems were becoming arcade capable at home as well. It was kind of becoming closer to those games that, you know, you were maybe developing 10 years before and they had such a massive gap between the home system and the arcade. It got closer then, I guess, didn't it? Oh, absolutely. And like I say, that's what made it very comfortable for us to do. We actually started two more games for that same system, but then the EA decided to go into arcades, which was a, a, a bad business decision for them in 1994. Uh, and we were pulled off of the General Chaos sequel and another game that we were doing for them uh, to, to do a, a 
arcade game for them, and their company opened and closed within <laughs> before our first arcade game was ever uh, finished. So that was that was kind of tough. We we tried to talk them out of it, but. Well, no. Refuge has been a very successful brand. You've done over kind of 45 different titles. Uh, what have been some of your favorites? For me, a, a lot about, about making games is the creative challenges. Some of them, some of my favorite games are less about the gameplay and more about the fact that the client wanted this absurd thing. You know, I want you to make this game and it's got to be a driving game, exciting six-player driving game, but the trucks can't touch each other and they can't go over four miles an hour. <laughs> okay. And then, so it's like, all right, do you mind if we put it on a downhill course? No, that's fine, all right. So I'm telling, you know, it's like, all right, so we're not telling them this yet, but the momentum is going to have these things going over 200 miles an hour when they get to the end, and they'll be doing flips and jumps. And and then about halfway through development, it's like, okay, now why don't you want the trucks to touch? Because this is a competitive player-to-player game. Well, we don't want the paint to scratch. Okay, I think we can handle that. We can make sure the paint doesn't scratch off if the cars bump into it, if the trucks bump into each other. Oh, and the and the third the third requirement for this game was, and the audience is not video game players. It's thirty five to fifty five year old men who will be with their wives at our annual convention for the next ten years who don't play video games and are probably going to be drunk. <laughs> And so we had, in the eye of the game, we gently, you know, it looks like a game where you can go anywhere you want and find secret paths and everything else and have this incredible high-speed race. And we are secretly pulling them back onto the course with them without them knowing it, turning them right side up again without them knowing it. That's one of my favorite games. It was called the Komatsu Cat Challenge, and it played at their convention from like 2006 to 2011, and thousands of people would line up every day for seven days a year to play this thing, and it was on stage, and it it was a wonder. You know, most people haven't seen it, but I have actually had contractors come up to me and said, I love that game. That's not one that anybody's going to be able to go out and find, but that's one of my favorite games just because the creative challenge and we met it and then they ran it for years. And every few years we get to we get to do an upgrade. So every game is that I do that we take on at Game Refuge, we only take on the game if we think we can bring something to it that's going to be good for the client and fun for us. And so we've had a lot of games where we just say, no, you'd probably be better off going to someone else. Well, that's absolutely amazing. You mentioned uh, earlier in the racing game there that, you know, you'd sometimes it'd be steering them back onto the path and it was all, you know, kind of cloaks and secrets there. And you also mentioned earlier on that sometimes you'd put cool little Easter eggs in games and hope people wouldn't discover them for weeks, months or anything like that. What were some of your favorite Easter eggs that you put into your games? It would have to be in Rampage World Tour in terms of pure Easter eggs. I'm always steered away from that kind of stuff, even though I knew it was popular, because if I've got 20 sprites left, I want to add some feature to the game. I don't want to necessarily hide anything. But uh, I became friends with the uh, editor-in-chief of uh, uh, Video Games Magazine, Tips and Tricks Magazine, Chris Bieniek, and he heard that we were redoing Rampage. We were doing Rampage World Tour for Midway now as Game Refuge, but for Midway again and the new Midway. And he said, Brian, if you want my 
magazine to do anything that's all about the Easter eggs. So we loaded up. I mean, there's a 15 page document of all the secrets in Rampage World Tour. You can go to hell and eat Hitler. You can, you know, visit the the uh, Area 51. You can and you know fight off invading spaceships. You can. Um, oh, there's so much in there. I can't even. Where where that big warehouse where they hid the uh, Ark of the Covenant? That's in there too. All of this stuff is in there. We loaded that game up so many ways. I mean, you can turn into a fourth character if you eat the horrible uh, toxic purple ooze at the right point uh and knock down fly around as a giant bat and knock down uh buildings with a single punch um karate moves on each other uh so that the player to player uh fighting for those that wanted to play it that way was more like a fighting game there's a ton of rampage world tour has got a ton of stuff in it. Um, in terms of stuff we put in games that the players never were supposed to find out, um, I've got some favorites. Probably my favorite was examples of, you know, in the arcade days, we had to we had to please the player who wanted to live forever on a quarter, and the operator wanted him off in 30 seconds. So we had to come up with ways to make both of those people happy. So games like Rampage, turning them back into humans because I didn't like the idea of characters dying in a video game, you know, and turning them back into little naked humans, but then letting the other players who were still monsters eat them (laughs) drove players, as it turned out, to dig as fast as they could into their pocket for that quarter so that they could buy in and continue before the person next to them ate them. So that is one of those little subtle things that it's like, doesn't sound like much, but it means that person's still buying in and still buying in. So now player's happy, he's back in the game. Operator's happy, he got happy, he got another quarter. But my favorite, one of these little secret things was uh, in the game Arch Rivals. It's a period game, it's basketball. So at the end of the uh, quarter, the time runs out, correct? The end of the period. Time runs out. No, that timer goes to zero and we let you keep playing and you keep playing and you keep playing. And then the next time any player shoots a basket towards the hoop, that basketball goes right up to the hoop and then it tells you the game's time's out. (laughs) No one notices that, but then everybody has to reach in for a quarter and they do to put in the quarter to find out if they got that game-winning basket or not. Just little <laughs> subtle things like that. I love to, I love to talk about now. I just, uh, we we can finally tell them. All these years later. <laughs> when you worked on, you know, one of the biggest entertainment franchises in history, you did the uh, Star Trek Voyager, the arcade game. What were kind of the challenges of working on such an established franchise, and uh, how did you actually manage to get that license? Uh, I, a lot of our, I've been very lucky. We've been very lucky as a company. People come to us and say, hey, for the most part, most of the games we've done over the last 27 years of Game Refuge is someone coming to us and saying, we've got this property or we've got this opportunity or we've got this product. Uh, that was a case where somebody, uh, we were doing uh, casino games for a group and someone associated with that group said, hey, I know someone who's got this Star Trek Voyager property. Would you be interested in doing a, uh, a rail type of game, kind of a House of the Dead sort of thing? And we said, sure. I, on the condition that 
to keep it from frost, we've got a few liberties that we can take with the, you know, the type of monsters. We didn't want it locked into the TV show. They said fine. Paramount was great, um, except for one little dust up in the on the studio at one time. It was a wonderful project to work on. We got to do all put all kinds of hidden stuff in that thing as well. Cause what I didn't want to do with a rail game was hi, I've played it through. So I'm done. So if you shoot a light bulb, you shoot a computer monitor, you shoot this character, it's going to change the path it's going to take. You can play that game a dozen times and find different stuff every time. That was important to us in designing it. I mean, for most people that you know are into uh, geek culture, working on a, a Star Trek game would be incredible. I mean, are, are you a Trekkie yourself? You know, I'm. I was a original Trek fan. That's right. my. I'm giving away my age now. But I had passionate Trekkies on my staff, and we were we we're actually out with the producer uh, touring the Voyager set at Paramount, and in the dark, kind of just wandering around. Oh, this is cool. Let's take some pictures of this, and. All of a sudden, we were, came around the corner and were confronted by a, I want to say, enraged, cigar-chomping LeVar Burton, <laughs> who demanded to know what we were doing on this closed set, why we were here. And the producer is silent. I'm stammering. Uh, we're doing a video game. I mean, perhaps you've heard about it. And, I'm, and God bless him, uh, my one of the lead animators on the game, the 3D animators, was a huge Trekkie, Ben, and he's, LeVar, oh, it's such an honor to meet you. I loved episode blah, 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 <laughs> where that you directed and wrote and you thought that the Gordy character and and all of a sudden, this enraged guy was transformed into the sweetest <laughs> human being and then spent the next 20 minutes showing us around. And so it, if you're working on a truck game, my advice to any developer is have Trekkies on your staff. <laughs> <laughs> so you did a, a Kickstarter for General Chaos. Um, do you think we'll see any other Kickstarters or sequels in the future? I hope so. I sincerely hope so. Uh, unfortunately, when I, I did the uh, General Chaos Kickstarter, I had I actually was flying out to the very first podcast. I had a uh, promotion director who set up a series of podcasts all around the country. This is... Oh, like quite a few years ago now, like six years ago. And unfortunately, the day before I went out to my first podcast with the indoor kids who were great, I found out I had cancer and I had to cancel the whole promotional tour. We never funded the original Kickstarter for Chaos, but I have been but I am still very hopeful that we're going to find a way to finish it. We got about 40. We've, we're about 40 percent through the through the game. You can actually move the characters, play it. The, the artists and animators I had on staff at that time took it to a great place. We've just got to, I'm still trying to work out the right plan to finish funding, funding this game because the Chaos fans are the most vocal of fans and they are not going to let this go away. And I, I, if I do no other games for the rest of my life, I've got to do General Chaos 2. It will happen. I, I believe it will. 
Well, Brian, it's been a pleasure getting your stories and the fact that you've still got all this passion for this wonderful industry of video games and this medium all these years later. Uh, thank you so much for coming on this week. And obviously, when uh, General Chaos do eventually does happen, please do get back in touch with us. And of course, we'd uh, love to get you back on and do an update on that. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's been, it's been a lot of fun talking to you guys. I hope you've... I'm glad you're now fully awake and the coffee's kicked in <laughs> and hope the rest of your day is going to be wonderful. <laughs>